let's uh let's get started. I'm back here, but you can stay. I'm coming up anyway. Um, my name is Kurt Cooper, and I did the announcement, so you should probably already know who I am. But um, this is my strange addiction. So, and you're in the promised land, not the literal promised land, but you know, whatever. Uh, and I did not know that there was a person named Billie Eilish, or that she sang a song, or that she was a girl, or that she sang a song called My Strange Addiction. I didn't know any of that, so that is a happy or not so happy coincidence, depending on what you think about that song. I've listened to it one time. It's not for me, so that's fine. Not every music has, not all music has to be for me. So, um, anyway, it, anyway, that's just a, God's providence that it would be, that I called my elective that, and then she has a song. So, anyway, someone pointed that out to me every time I've taught this class. It's like, hey, have you ever heard that song by Billie Eilish? And I'm like, who's that? So, uh, which pretty much answers their, their question. All right, who am I? My name is Kirk Cooper. Um, I have been the minister to youth at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Montgomery, Alabama for the last seven and a half years. I've been coming to RYM since before you were born, more than likely. So, uh, since like 02, 03. So, um, in some capacity, whether I was a chaperone, I'm old, is what I'm trying to say. And uh, this is me and my wife. My wife is actually here, so you'll see her. Um, she's she's here. She's not here in this room right now um, because she has to hear me talk all the time. And so, she's fine missing 45 minutes of me talking. So, uh that, that's her, though. Her name's Marty, um, and we were married in 2005. And then she will probably be flanked uh, by these two um, when you see her here. Uh, on your right is Campbell. He is seven. Um, he assumes that every high school student he meets, one, knows me, and two, he can tell them what to do, and they'll do it. So just get ready for that. But he's really sweet. Um, and then Grayson is on your left. He is two years old, and he is he looks sweeter, but is much less sweet. So just be careful about him. Just watch out for him. He is, I don't know what we're going to do with him. He's fierce. So uh, anyway, that's my family. That's who we are. We will see you around on the beach. Um, you know, you'll catch us in between Grayson's fits, um, you know, doing whatever. But, um, and I'm happy to be here with you, and... I guess that's really all you need to know about me. Um, I'm going to make fun of myself a lot, and I might make fun of you a little bit too, So, um, but that's okay. Uh, trust me, it'll mostly be about me and less about making fun of you. Um, so uh, anything else? I guess not. Why don't I pray, and we'll get started. Lord, we do pray that you would um, let us see ourselves as you see us, and we pray that you would... Give us that you illuminate our minds and that you give us wisdom as we think about these things. That you would uh, encourage us this week, convict us this week, um, point us to Christ this week. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, as every elective should, I'm going to start talking about some old dead white men. So here we go. Um, now, look, there's nothing, wrong, there's nothing wrong with being old or dead. Or white, or a man, there's nothing wrong. But that's something that all three of these people have in common, uh, uh, along with a couple of other things. Um, they were all alive 
for a brief window of time um, in the 1800s, but or the 19th century, as we like to call it. I, I found out that the 1800s were the 19th century, like, kind of late in life. Um, like, I mean, it's been more than a decade since I've known, but I was still, like, you know, I was older. Also, um, like, the fact that, that what makes the sound when you snap is your middle finger hitting this part of your hand and not, like, the actual that. Like, I've discovered that, like, pretty late in life, too. So um, now everyone is snapping, and I've ruined the elective. Anyway, um, this is not a sorority bid session. Keep your snaps to yourself. So that is a super deep cut joke that only a couple of people can get. Anyway, um, but I want to talk about these old men. Let's start on the left with Sir Robert Christison. Sir Robert Christison was born in Scotland. He was a doctor, and he was an accomplished doctor. He... Um, he became the president of the British Medical Association. So he was like one of the most foremost doctors of his time in his country and in the world, all right? And uh, one of the things that Sir Robert Christen Robert did, as you can tell by the name Sir, he was knighted, but um, is that he studied the effect of certain substances on uh, the human body. He does a research position. And one of the cool things that he did, I just have so much respect for this guy because there's a lot of ways you can say this, but this guy was just very brave. And uh, one of the things that he did was he, uh, he would ask for volunteers to come and take substances and then t tell him what, they were experiencing, like what it felt like. And when he couldn't find someone to take the substance because it was dangerous, he would just take it himself. So he would take like arsenic and cyanide and strychnine. He would take these things that definitely kill you, okay? And he would just write, and then he was 60, 70, 80 years old while he was doing this. He would write, he would write down how he was feeling and then he would have his assistants pump his stomach and, like, when he was about ready to pass out so, so that they could study, like, the effect of certain chemicals on the body. So when you meet a doctor and you think, oh, man, he must be so tough. He got through med school. Just think of Robert Christensen because this is, like, what a real doctor looks like, okay? I'm, if you're a doctor in here, I'm not trying to talk trash. But how many times have you taken arsenic? That's all I'll ask. Anyway, so, uh, so one day Robert Christensen took a substance and the reaction that he had was this. He was 80 years old, and as soon as he took it, he decided he would go for a walk, and he went on a 15-hour, 10-mile walk through Scotland, okay, which is not exactly flat land, by the way. Um, and he came back, and he went to bed, and he woke up the next day, and he felt great. And he thought that he had discovered the elixir of life, the, the drug that was going to cure everything. What he had taken was cocaine, all right? John Pemberton fought John S. There are two John Pembertons in the Civil War. John C. Pemberton is the more famous John Pemberton for war. This guy is probably, John S. Pemberton is more famous in popular culture now, um, even though you probably don't know who he is. He fought in the Civil War. He fought on the losing side. Um, so uh, he was grievously injured uh, and uh fighting in Georgia, where he's from, 
And um, just like Georgia football, he managed to lose. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, uh, come on, that was just right there for me. Uh, but no, he he got injured really badly, you know. And I don't know if you know what it was like to get injured in the Civil War, but the kind of surgery they did there was like, I got shot in the foot, and they're like, okay, well we'll just cut it off. Like that's the surgery that we do is we just cut off the foot. And um, so this day he he was in a lot of pain, and he was addicted to morphine. He was trying to figure out some way to curb his mor- morphine addiction. He was also a pharmacist. And so he developed this thing called French wine with coca, which had cocaine in it as well, and it helped him uh, curb his addiction to morphine, um, this French wine, non-alcoholic wine with cocaine syrup mixed in. And he eventually changed the name because French wine with coca didn't really work. He just changed it to Coca-Cola, and, uh, and, and that's where we got Coca-Cola. So that's kind of cool. And then the last guy is Sigmund Freud. Now, I don't know if you know about psychoanalysis. I don't know how much you've studied. Sigmund Freud and his contributions are debated, whether they were good or bad. Or you know, a, lot of, a lot of people have a lot of questions about Sigmund Freud. But he was a very smart individual. He also struggled a lot with digestion and some severe di- digestive problems and sleep problems. And uh, he started to take cocaine. And he wrote a book called Uber Coca about how cocaine had solved all of his medical problems. Okay. So all of these guys are learned men, and they all thought that cocaine was the answer to whatever they were looking for, okay? And they used cocaine, and they, but they weren't the only ones. I have some advertisements here, okay? This is my favorite one. This is a precursor to Coca-Cola. This is called Bog's Tawny Port. I'm just going to read you a little bit from this. This is a cure for drunks, what it says on this ad. It says, the cure works like magic, Consisting almost entirely of cocaine syrup and wheat grapes, if any drunkard drinks copious amounts of this cocaine syrup, they will almost instantly lose their need and want of alcohol, you don't say, and will gain a new want for life and fun. Tell them to drink more and hand them Boggs Tawny Port. On the other side, you see an ad for uh, a cocaine extract they would put on your head, all right, and it was supposed to promote hair growth, and it was uh, kill dandruff, and also... It cures scald head, whatever scald head is. I feel like scald head is an insult that you give someone when you don't, like on the playground, when you don't know what to say. Like someone really gets you and your feelings really bad with an insult, and you're, and you're like, well, guess what? You got scald head. And then be like, that kid like just walks off into the, and like, you know, into the ocean because there's no coming back from that insult. So um, he said, I had scald head, Mom. Do I, do I have scald head? What is scald head? Um, I need some cocaine, apparently, to fix that. So, hey, but it wasn't just for adults. They also had them for kids. Cocaine toothache drops. This is real, by the way. This is real. An instantaneous cure. 15 cents for a cocaine toothache drop you can give your child when they have a toothache, and their tooth won't hurt anymore. Just give them the cocaine. Hey, why why wait until they're, like, you know, Children, what about when they're babies? Um, what about Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup um, for, ch- for children teething? Cocaine, cocaine-infused syrup for babies. Now, look, here, here's what I want to tell you, is that in the 1800s, we discovered cocaine. And what we thought was that it was a miracle drug. It would help children who were teething. Um, it would help um, 
It would help people who couldn't get up and walk be able to get up and walk. It seemed awesome, all right? But what they didn't do, what they didn't realize, oh, here's an ad. Cocaine is endorsed by 20,000 of the most learned and scientific medical men in the world. Cocaine can supply the place of food, make the coward brave, the silent eloquent, and render the sufferer insensitive to pain. Now, in Proverbs, the scriptures say, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. In, um, in Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is talking about counting the cost. He says, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And the problem was, here's the problem is that those men that I showed you, were they dumb men? Were they idiots? No, they were not. They're smarter than, but several of them were smarter than any two people in here combined, okay? You become president of the British Medical Association, you know, or write, like, groundbreaking research on psychoanalysis and then come back and talk trash about Sigmund Freud or Robert Christensen, or you invent Coca-Cola, okay? Like, look, they're not, these guys were not idiots. They were learned people, okay? But they thought, they thought that they had discovered something that was really going to help people, and it was cocaine. And the problem was this. is first is that cocaine was brand new. It was brand new. They just didn't, it hadn't been around long enough for them to really understand, understand it completely. The second thing was is that cocaine seemed to solve many important problems. Old people who couldn't get up, who were developing bed sores because they were tied to a wheelchair or, or they were stuck in a bed, they could give them some cocaine, and they could all of a sudden get up and walk. You know, which is really good for being ambulatory is one of the really important things for your health. You know, um, so it seemed to solve a lot of important problems, scald head included. So, um, also, cocaine's effects weren't apparent yet. We just didn't know that it kills you, all right, that it makes your heart explode. I could just imagine if they did medical, they did medical commercials like they do now back then, it'd be like a guy and a girl hang gliding and it'd be like, when I take cocaine, I can live my best life. You know what I mean? And um, <laughs> But then the side effects, you know, they have the side effects in the commercials that are like, um, you know, like that where they list all the different things that happen and be like, see a doctor if your heart explodes. Like they, um, we just didn't know. We didn't know that cocaine is highly addictive. We didn't know. They didn't understand that it could kill you. All right? They didn't understand that it wasn't really a solution. It was a temporary solution that caused problems that were even worse um, later on. And also, at the time, we didn't totally understand addiction. We didn't understand how addiction worked. And here is how people thought about addiction back in the 1800s. Um, the people who were susceptible to addiction were people who were young, like you, right? You were susceptible to addiction. Or people who were weak-willed, who couldn't make good decisions. Those are the people, this is what we thought about alcoholics. Alcoholics, you know, back then, is that alcoholics, they just couldn't, they didn't have the willpower to choose to stop. They were just weak, and that's why they were addicts. Or they weren't smart. You, you couldn't reason with them. And this is how we thought about addiction. And so people like Robert Christensen and um, Sigmund Freud, they never even considered the fact that they might become addicted to cocaine. And here's why. Because they, were, they weren't young. They were certainly not weak-willed. I mean, they graduated med school and did all this stuff. And they certainly weren't unintelligent, right? So they were like, I don't have anything to worry about, right? I'm fine. Now we understand 
that that's not at all how addiction works. That your intelligence level or your willpower level, whatever that is, or your your age doesn't really preclude you in any way from being addicted. You can be addicted at any time. The oldest person in here, the youngest person in here could become addicted to something, right? So we didn't understand addiction. So look, some of you are like, hey, I thought this was about phones, and I'm at church camp, and this guy keeps talking about cocaine, and I'm a little confused. And that's fine, okay? I've got you disoriented, which is right where I want you, all right? Um, Here's what I want to suggest to you, okay? Here's what I want to suggest to you. Cocaine was new. It solved important problems. We didn't understand its effects, and also we didn't understand addiction. Everything that I've just said about cocaine can also be said about smartphones. Every single thing that I just said. Let's talk about it for just a second to prove my point. Are smartphones new? Yes, they are extremely new. The iPhone was released in 2007. 2007. I was talking with these people up here in the front row, and like when the iPhone was released, the oldest she, the oldest person I was talking to, was five years old, like barely making memories at that point, like that she can actually remember. Um, you know, some of you in here were born in 2005, 2006. Like the iPhone is just barely younger than you, so you've lived your entire lives being able to Google stuff wherever and whenever you want, and that is a dramatic difference from like me. Okay, do you know? that I spent a significant amount of time in my life, like riding in a car, just arguing about stuff that could have easily been Googled. Like we just, that's what we did for entertainment. We argued. Like we would argue, instead, nowadays, like we would argue who's the greatest basketball player of all time, all right? And back then it was clear, and today it's still clear um, that it's Michael Jordan. But, um, and I don't, I'm not here for your arguments for LeBron. We can talk about that later, um, but just know that you're just young and you don't understand basketball, so that's fine. Um, the, uh, that's okay, it's fine. But um, you can disagree or disagree. But we, that's what we do is we just argue about stuff. Where was Tom Petty from? Oh, I think he was from Florida. Well, I think it was, you know, like, we. Nowadays, you guys just don't even do that. Your default move is like, well, we'll just Google it. Why would we argue? If we want to argue about basketball, be like, let me get on basketballreference.com and cite you Jordan's PER. Like, look, I lived it. I don't need to know his PER. Like, he never lost in the finals, so get off, you know, get out of here. But anyway, um, like, that's what we do. Your default mode, your default mode because of when you were born is all my answers can be found on a phone. Like, I can just find, you don't, you don't do that, right? And it's brand new, and there's, it's unique to your generation. And look, phones seem to solve a ton of problems, right? I mean, when I was in the year that I got my iPhone, my first iPhone, it was 2008. And I was driving, I was actually riding in a car with my parents and my wife. We were all driving um, to, uh, to my cousin's wedding. And I'm sitting in the back seat. And my dad is in the front seat. He's driving. And, um, and we're going through Tyler, Texas. And just whatever. But my dad is sighing. He does this thing where he sighs. He goes, <sighs> that's what I know when my dad's really mad. And unfortunately, also, that's what you know when I'm really mad, too. But um, I picked that up from him. But he was sighing, and he was just like, I'm just so mad. And I was like, Dad, I wasn't really paying attention to him. I was like, Dad, why are you so mad? And he was like, this road that we're on, this turn, it's not on this map that I have. Now, he had a paper map. I know you guys are like, what? They, um, 
they uh, he had his compass out. It was strange. Astrolabe. He was like, you know, like they, um, it was the North Star anyway. But uh, he's just not on my map. And I said, Dad, can I see that map for a second? And he handed it back to me in the back seat. And I was looking. And I was like, Dad, this map was made in 1995. It's like more than I don't. I I can't even do the math right now. It's like. 13 or 14 years old. I was like, do you think that the roads in Tyler, Texas could have changed in the last 14 years? And he was so mad. He was like, I'm going to get a Garmin today. And we got to the wedding eventually, and he went and bought a Garmin at Target immediately. Um, And uh, we used my iPhone to get the rest of the way. But, like, that's an experience that for most of you, you will never have, right? Because this is what's so new, right? Is that I remember, I'm, I know I'm old to you guys, I know I'm old, but I'm not that old, and I remember when no one had a cell phone, and no one could Google anything, and there was no Google, right? I remember when there was no internet, and that, like, I tangibly remember it, okay? Like, um, I could tell you, like, but you guys can't. That's how new and brand new and groundbreaking this is, right? Is that it's new, it solves important problems, Right? But here's the other thing that's really important for your generation specifically is that we don't know the effects of smartphone use and overuse yet. Like we're starting to get a picture of it, but we still don't know. And you know who the guinea pigs are who are going to tell us what it's like to have always lived on that? You are. You are the guinea pigs. We're, we're going to give you these phones way, way young, you know, or your iPads or whatever, and we're going to let you get on these screens, and we're just going to see what happens. And no one is like, this is not a plan that's been specifically laid out, but, like, this is what's happening. And we don't know. It could be that years from now, like, we're looking at old ads where kids are playing with iPads and phones and being like and being just as, and laughing just as hard and being just as aghast as we are that we gave kids cocaine, right? That could be what happens here. We could look back and be like, why would they ever give kids that technology that young? Like, it has all these negative effects. Just don't know, right? We just don't know. Also, we still don't understand addiction the way that we ought to understand addiction. Let's do a little uh, class participation, if you will. It's not a class, but whatever. Um, no one's getting grades here except you. Um, they, you're going to have to repeat. No, I'm <laughs> Just joking, man. I'm just messing with this guy. Um, so uh, let's do this. I'm going to start this sentence. She is addicted to, and I want you just, the things that come to your mind to finish that sentence, go. Pizza, cocaine, it, it certainly ought to be one thing. Okay, good. Huh? Marijuana, alcohol. I heard someone say alcohol. And chocolate. Someone already said phone. Shopping. No one said pain meds. No one said no one said nicotine yet. We don't need jewelers in here. They, um, oh, maybe I hit a little close to home there, right? I'm not, I'm not supposed to know about that. My bad. Hey, listen, you just suck on your little USB drive all you want and think that looks cool, okay? Can I just tell you something about Julian real quick? Can I tell you something? You never look dumber in your life. I. I would rather you smoke cigarettes. I'm probably going to get in trouble for that. But, like, at least you have fire in your hand. That looks legitimately cool. Anyway. Don't, Jewel, don't smoke cigarettes either. It's just terrible for you. Um, Okay, I want you to know something about what we just said, okay? Most of the things that we said were substances that we put inside our body. So that would be caffeine, nicotine, chocolate, uh, marijuana, alcohol, cocaine. Like these are things. Those, 
the majority of the answers, a vast majority of the answers, were things that we insert, like a chemical that we insert into our body that has an effect on us chemically, right? Those are the things. Some of the things that we listed are not that. Though. Some of the things are behavioral addictions. And that is something that we really kind of discount, but is a really powerful part when we talk about our phones and how we're addicted to them, is the behavioral side of it, behavioral addiction. Let me give you some examples of behavioral addiction, okay? I'll give you one really obvious one for me, which is this. I bite my fingernails, okay? I picked it up from my mom. She did it, and I do it too. And um, whenever I'm stressed out, Whenever I've got a lot going on, you can guarantee these things are going to be down to the nubs. Okay? I bite my finger. Now, do my fingernails contain some kind of substance that, like, relieves my stress and gets me high in any way? No, they do not. They don't. Uh, first of all, don't eat them. That would be gross. Um, they, uh, if you eat your fingernails, I want to talk to you later. They, uh, <laughs> what are you doing to your insides? But, um, no, it's a behavior that I've developed that I use as a coping mechanism, right? Right? There's lots of these, right? A classic one is pornography, right? Pornography is a behavioral addiction, all right? So, um, I, like, there are all kinds of behavioral addictions, right? There are girls in here who, who, who are constant. They, they play with their hair, right? It's just something that they do. And they're like, they get nervous, and they're like, <laughs> <laughs> and they do this. Why are they doing that? Is that giving them something? No. It's, it's something that they have learned to do to cope with whatever stressor is in their life. And what's interesting about behavioral addictions is that this thing can happen called classical conditioning, where a behavior, we can associate a behavior with some kind of stimuli that we receive so that they join together. And in fact, there's been some study done on this. There's this guy in Russia, and he experimented on dogs. His name was Pavlov. And what he did... In case, just in case you haven't heard about this, is that what he did, and they would not let him do this now because people hate science or love animals. I don't know. It's one of those things. But um, they, uh, he, he would insert, surgically insert a gauge into one side of the dog's mouth that would trap all of the saliva that was coming in from one side. And he measured how much the dog salivated. And I don't know why he got the idea to do this. Um, they, uh, but actually, it was really profitable, so who am I to judge? Um, but what he discovered was is that any time that his assistant came into the room, that the dogs would salivate more. And he quickly realized that that was because his assistant was the one that was in charge of feeding the dogs. So when they saw him, they associated the food. So he developed this mechanism where instead of the assistant feeding them, he would ring a bell. And whenever he would ring the bell, food would drop down to their bowls and they would eat. Okay, And he would ring the bell, they would eat. He would ring the bell, they would eat. He would ring the bell, they would eat. And that's kind of how it worked. right? Well, um, eventually it got to the point where he could just ring the bell. And he, without feeding them, without even receiving the food, the dogs would begin to salivate and salivate and salivate, right? There, this stimuli, that bell ringing, they had associated it with eating. It, it, they, it, it converged. And they'd been classically conditioned to associate this bell with them eating. And what's so interesting about that, okay, whether you like dogs or saliva or whatever, you know, what's so interesting about that is this, is that... We are classically conditioning ourselves. I've got some videos here, and I'm really hoping that the sound works because, um, but 
Uh, I want to show you all exactly what I'm talking about. Let's see if this works. Yeah. Reflexes keep us alive, but we're not born with programmed reactions. Sometimes new stimuli can provoke a near universal response, like when this guy walks past people and pings his own cell phone. I think a lot of us would fall for that. What you're seeing here is classic, classic conditioning. It's Pavlovian. Essentially, there is a stimulus that is linked to a type of behavior, and the two eventually merge completely. So whenever you hear that sound, you will immediately reach for your phone. I actually checked my cell phone while watching the clip. All right, so did I hear what he said? He said, this is classical conditioning that we, that we are training ourselves that when this thing calls, we respond. I got one more video to show you guys because I like fun um, about classical conditioning. I just could not do again. it. Hey, Dwight, do you want an Altoid? What do you think? What? One Altoid? Okay. Altoid? Sure. What are you doing? I... What? I don't know. I, well, my mouth tastes so bad all of a sudden. Now look, I know that we like to think that we're Jim and that we're the cool one who's always looking at the camera like, you know, but we're Dwight. We, if we're honest with ourselves, if you're using your phone, even semi-regularly, you have classically conditioned yourself to answer when it calls. I'll give you an example from my own life. I'll be driving in the car and maybe I have like jeans on or something so I can't like readily get to my phone. All right. And I'm, um, I shouldn't be on my phone at all when I'm driving the car. We'll talk about that later. But um, my wife will text me. Now, when my wife texts me, if she has multiple things to tell me, she doesn't just write one long block text and send it, which is what, like, a normal, like, healthy human would do. Instead, what she does is she sends me, like, one sentence, and then she hits send, and then another sentence, and then another sentence. And I always tell her, if she has to hit send more than twice, just call me because I – and. So well, what happens, I'll be driving the car, and I will feel my phone vibrate. I'll feel it buzz. Then I got a text message. I'm like, okay, well, I got a text message. And then I get another one and another one. And then, of course, your iPhone, it's set up so that it will, if you don't check your messages the first time it buzzes, it will give you that second buzz. So if I get three text messages, you get six buzzes, right? And me, I'm an allegedly, I'm a 39-year-old mature adult. That's allegedly who I am. I will be in my car, driving, yelling to absolutely no one alone in the car. I'm driving right now. I can't answer my phone. Why is that? Because I have trained myself with them. When that thing buzzes, I need to respond to it. I have this, and when I can't, I'm agitated. That is interesting. That is a relationship worth exploring, is that 
when this thing calls to me, I'm frustrated and angry if I cannot respond to it. It begs the question, who's in charge, right? It begs the question, who's the master and who's the slave? All right? Who works for who? Okay. Um, I want to finish this up by talking about idolatry because I think what I, where I want to go is, is that in many ways this phone is like an idol to us. And the Bible has a lot to say about idolatry. Um, this is in Romans. Um, Romans chapter 1, Paul's writing, he says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonor of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And this is the part I want to focus on. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He says, Paul is basically defining idolatry for us when he says, that idolatry is when we worship the thing that is made instead of the person who made it. When we worship the created thing instead of the creator, specifically God. Tim Keller, which is my pseudonym for when I write books, um, he, uh, come on, that's not even a good joke, but thank you for that courtesy laugh. Um, the, uh, he says, and he's not the first person to say this either, so um, an idol is usually a good thing that we make ultimate. We say, unless I have that, I am nothing, okay? I want to suggest to you today, the first day together, three, that your phone is quite possibly an ultimate thing. And here, we'll do a little thought exercise just to prove that, okay? Why don't you just turn your phone off for the month of July? Why not? I mean, you can live without it. We've lived for thousands of years without phones, right? Like, you'll probably still get three meals a day. and Just the very thought. The very thought of that has got some of you stressed out. Or some of you are just like, I'm just, I could never, ever do that. That is a sign. That is at least a sign. It doesn't mean that you're a hopeless idolater, but it is a sign that your phone quite possibly has become an ultimate thing. It's become a thing that you can't imagine living and thriving if you don't have it, all right? And so this is where I want us to land today, okay? This is where I want us to land, is that we're forced to face the reality that our phones have become ultimate things and that we can't imagine living and thriving without them. And this is the important, this is a really important part, that our phones, that we believe that our phones give us access to our most core desires like belonging and security and knowledge. Now, what am I saying here? I'm not saying, when I say that this is quite possibly an idol in your life, I'm not saying that you worship the phone itself for its phoneness. Then there are people, rare people, who do that, right? There are people who are like, oh, the RAM, like the pixels, like look at this bezeling. Like, okay, uh, listen, those people exist. I will grant you. I went back and looked at the first time the iPhone was introduced at the keynote that Steve Jobs did. And there are some nerds there who are really, like, revealing their nerdery. Like, they're, you know how, like, when you scroll on the phone, like, when you get to the end of a list, it, like, bounces and comes back? The, you go back and watch this. When Steve Jobs does that the first time, there are people like, oh, they're, like, losing their mind. There's nerds in Silicon Valley who are just like, like, he's like, isn't this cool that we do this? And they're like, no. They're like, they're just, their minds are melting, and, like, it was cool at the time. I'm not saying that you're worshiping, like, 
like the technical aspects of your phone. Most of you take all that for granted, okay? You're not really worried about that. Here's what I am suggesting, is that your phone could quite possibly be an idol for you if your phone is giving you access to things that you really are worshiping. Your sense of security, your sense of belonging, like your the idea that you know things or that you're knowledgeable. If If your phone is your access to those feelings, all right, your primary access to those feelings, that's a great recipe for idolatry. That's a great recipe for idolatry. You know, we like to think that we're way more mature and way more knowledgeable than the people who lived, like, in even Jesus' time or before them. You know, I mean, they didn't have the Internet. They didn't have cars. They didn't have a telephone. Like, how smart could they be or whatever? Well, we're really not that different from them. We're really not. Um, have you ever seen the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe? Um, there's a scene. It is a good movie. Um, and there's a scene in that movie early on where he is praying to the Roman gods for his wife and his son. And the spoiler alert is that they are not going to make it. So RIP to them. Um, necessary rip. Rip them. But, um, but... He has like a little wooden woman and a little wooden boy that he sets down. They like represent his family. He takes with him to war. And he sets them down in front of some candles and some other idols, right? And he prays to the gods. Now, in that moment, does, does Maximus believe that those wooden statues are what's, or those marble statues are what's going to keep his children or his wife safe? No, he does not. He believes that those things represent some higher reality, right? People in the olden times, they didn't worship the statues because they were for their marble or for their onyx or for their statuness. They worshiped them because they represented something higher that they felt answered their core needs and desires, right? The truth of the matter is, is that our idols are more sophisticated. This is more sophisticated. But they're not that much different from these, right? Because these things, these things that we hold in our hands, and these could be held in your hand, these things that we hold in our hands, we think that they connect us to something that we have to have. And therefore, they are very much like these idols, okay? And that is a relationship that's worth exploring. This is not going to be Kurt coming down on you about your phone use, all right? That's not what this elective is about. I'm going to tell you what we're going to do for the rest of the time, then we're going to close. Tomorrow, I, today all I wanted to do was establish the fact that it's quite possible and even likely that your phone is a source of idolatry for you. The second thing I want to do is I want to talk about how your phone is changing who you are. It's changing you. It's making you a different person than you would be without it. All right, we're going to go through that. We're going to spend all tomorrow talking about that. And then on the third day, we're going to look at um, how we're going to look at a few more ways in which your phone is changing you. And then we're going to talk about what can we do about it. Can we do anything about it? And if we, what is there to do? What can we learn from the gospel and what it has to say about idols? and the breaking of idols, and, and, and worshiping the, cre- the creator instead of the created things, 
What can we do and how can we apply that to phones so that we can kind of take ownership of our phone, that we can hold our phone up, put our phone on the altar to Jesus Christ and say, I give this to you as well, all right? So that's our map for what we're going to do. But today, all I want you to, I just want you to consider the possibility, and if you're taking this class, I feel like you maybe have already considered the possibility that your phone is an idol, all right? It's a dangerous idol in your heart. Okay, um, that's all for today. I'm going to close in prayer. Actually, I'm going to ask a leader to close in prayer. And let me choose you. Yes. Yeah. Will you, will you pray for us?